0: Daily Premier League news and views. This is Football Social Daily. Welcome,
2: welcome. This is Football Social Daily, your daily Premier League update. Thank you very much for listening. Make sure you've subscribed. You'll get the show every day as soon as it's ready. It's the best way to keep abreast of all the latest Premier League action. Today on the podcast, I'm Jim Salverson. I've got Marley Anderson with me. How are you doing, Marley? Good morning. Yeah, not too bad. And we've got Stefan Armstrong as well. You are right, Steph? No, Now, Jim. What's happening? So today we've got a robbery at the Amex as Crystal Palace beat the Seagulls. We've got a disadvantage in Europe as Atletico give up home advantage against Chelsea in the Champions League. And we've got a new face at Leeds United, maybe. Could be be leaving Yorkshire as he puts off signing his new contract? We'll talk about all that very soon on the podcast. But first... We've also got a stadium full of fans, maybe very soon. A rare sight nowadays, but one that could be returning before we know it, as the UK government yesterday revealed its roadmap out of lockdown, which includes a potential return for fans in stadiums, which I don't think many people expected to be coming as soon as it is, but it looks like fans could be back in stadiums, some fans at least, by the middle of May, 10,000 fans could be back in stadiums by the middle of May, in fact, which would be in time for the last round of Premier League games, if they are allowed back in. Should they be allowed back in, Steph? Or does it feel too early for you? I don't want to get too bogged down in kind of the political arguments and the st- like infection rates, which, to be honest, we know nothing about. But does it feel like the right time?
1: Um Look, if if uh, Bojo and his and his gang say it's <laughs> all right, then I'll I'll be in the stadium. Um, I mean, it, to be honest with you, it seems a bit pointless if it's just for one game. Um, then might as well just call it quits for the whole season and then you know come back, you know, full of beans for the beginning of the next season. But do you know what? If if they put it up for offer, I'm taking it.
2: Does it? impact the integrity of the Premier League bringing them back in for that one final game is it a level playing field if you've got fans I mean we've seen some fans in some stadiums throughout the season in spits and spots for no consistent period but if you suddenly bring 10,000 fans into the stadiums for those final games does it impact the integrity in any way
1: it might help in a bit of a in a relegation battle if, if a team needs a point to stay up or something like that you'd rather have 10,000 fans than not and um, so in terms of that it would be a bit unfair but as you say there's been um fans uh, f- throughout the season at different different spots in in stadiums albeit not that many um and it didn't really make that much of a difference. I think there's nothing worse in football than a than an empty stadium like a mm. you know like I'll I'll speak from an example let's talk Hearts Hibs here. There was there's, a, there's a, a period of nearly 10 years where Hibs never won a game. Um so their stadium a capacity of around about 20,000, only ever had about 5,000 people in it. That's worse than no fans. So I don't think it really matters in terms of integrity.
2: Fulham versus Newcastle, Marley is one of the games that is slated for that final weekend and probably one of the more interesting games on that final weekend because it could well be a straight relegation shootout by that point. It'll be Fulham that's at home. In that case, with a packed craven cottage, well, packed full of 10,000 fans, as packed as that makes it, do you feel as a Newcastle fan that would give the opposition an unfair advantage in that scenario? Uh,
3: in that scenario, if it came down to it, yeah, I do. Um, because it's it's such a short, like, impact um, time. You know, the 90 minutes of the entire season happens to be the most, in, most important 90 minutes. If... If the season ended tomorrow, you know, then um, then relegation would uh, would thra- would uh, completely rely on what happened in that game. So to give one team ten thousand fans, or I don't know if it would be ten thousand fans, it'd be twenty five percent of Craven Cottage because it's the size of a car park. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's still it's it's gonna be twenty five percent full, um, and it's gonna be a massive uh, advantage for them because the 90 minutes that you would need fans is that 90 minutes in that game. If you were to choose one game of the season where fans could have an impact, it would be the one which everything's riding on. And there's nothing bigger than Premier League survival. Um, But it's not, it doesn't
2: come down to that game though, does it? Because it comes down to the 38 games that preceded it. Well,
3: yeah, but 37 games preceded it. It didn't have fans. So, you know, why, why then put fans in for that one last game? Um, I think that becomes an advantage that, that, that is different um, from the from the previous thirty seven. If you, I mean, if it's thirty seven out of eight, what is one more game? Like, surely it's hard even as well for clubs to um, logistically set out. You know who gets the um, who gets the the tickets? The twenty five. Who's, who's the lucky twenty five percent? Some sort of Willy Wonka style golden ticket thing. Like, it's weird to have. You know, you've got season ticket holders that have. Um, that are going to be like, well, I didn't expect to go and see a game today, but if there is one, then I should go. And then there's um, there's everything, there's the away fans as well, which which I think, you know, we haven't had a, a detailed plan of how this is uh, going to be put into force yet, but I would assume that away fans aren't part of the 10,000 or 25% because of the way everything else is. It hmm. just makes no sense for, for them to, to chuck away fans in when because it's just a pilot really, um, it's just a pilot event. So why would you put ten thousand away fa- um some of the away fans in as well? Because then you're just increasing the, the likelihood of any sort of spread because you've got people coming from Newcastle down to London, stopping all the way down on the trains and all the rest of it. And you know it, it just becomes a bit of a, not like shooting yourself in the foot type of thing. So, as well with that, you know n- you know no away fans, loads of home fans, um, and if it comes down to that. That um, that game, which you shouldn't do, um, because you should never be going into a uh, one last game of the season without um, mm. you know without your, your survival intact. Newcastle will be down well before that. <laughs> Very much so. Uh, could well be. Could well be. But I was looking at the fixtures yesterday, and I think our last three, uh, we've got Fulham away on the last day. The the week before that, we've got Sheffield United at home. Um, and the week before that I think we've then got like Man City and uh, Man City-Leicester um, who else? The, God knows, uh, Arsenal before that so if we are in trouble with four games to go uh, five games to go three of them are at almost certain defeats and two of them are winnable games so we could see that situation when it comes down to uh, one last game and then you get 10,000 Londoners cramming into the Craven Cottage So in your mind, are you with Steph that but- if it
2: comes down to one game final game of the season with the potential to bring fans back the premier league should just avoid any kind of issues avoid potential legal challenges which will inevitably come from the relegated teams if it comes down to that last day and go look let's just let's just leave it for now let's just complete the season and worry about it next season
3: yeah it seems like a, a hell of a lot of work to do for one week like why not st- why not put it off for another week and then have a proper plan for next season because you're going to have pre-season you're going to have six weeks of um, of stuff uh, to, to sort stuff out and think of a logistical plan that, that is best for everyone so why try and
2: cram it in now It's an arbitrary date at the moment, as the government keep on saying they're driven by data, not dates, and then gave us a lot of dates they want to hit. But it it probably won't actually come to fruition because it depends on all the infection rates and all that kind of thing, vaccine rollouts. But what does look more likely is that there will be full stadiums, not capped capacity, but full stadiums full of fans for the European Championships this summer, which aren't necessarily nailed on to actually happen at the moment, but it's looking more and more likely. I think this could be a real advantage for England, because, as we know, England are well ahead of the game in terms of vaccinations compared to the rest of Europe, so it's likely that more of the games that are planned to be held throughout Europe will actually happen in this country with full stadiums. Travel bans means it's going to be a predominantly home crowd as well. It could really be... I mean... As a a Scotsman, Steph, you're probably not the best person to ask this question to. I suppose it could be an advantage for Scotland as well as England going into this tournament.
1: Yeah, you're speaking to a half-Scottish, half-German bloke here, Jim. So (laughs) I've I've really got no interest in England doing well in this tournament.
2: Well, what about Scotland? Because Scotland are in the same group as England, obviously, in Group D to kick off the... And they're going to be hoping to get out of the group.
1: (laughs) Yeah, hoping's a big word, Jim. Like Scotland aren't going to get out of that group, no chance. Makes no difference to them. All
2: right then. Well, let's let's ask Marley then. If you're going to be you're, you're, fill out the uh, stereotype of the dour Scotsman for a step. Then <laughs> let's let's get it over to Marley. I mean, this could be an advantage for England, couldn't it? Going into, I'm kind of seeing Euro '96 esque hot summer. Garden parties, England romping all the way to at least the
3: semi-finals? Uh, it could be. Um, it's certainly an advantage, especially in an international tournament when literally everyone in that country doesn't support anyone other than the home team. Um, as well, I think there's, there's plans or there's proposals to, to play all the games in England because we're one of the, the only countries that can host it on short notice and that would be you know, even better for England, I suppose. But you know, it all depends on... On a, on a lot of things and um, I, I still think a, a lot of it is um, slightly dreamy that we're gonna have everything ready um, just because nothing's gone to plan for the last year. So why would it for the next three months? I don't I don't really get that yet but um, it is it, if, if that does happen, I think yeah England are, are the big winners from it and they're the big you know everything suits them, everything falls to them. And then all of a sudden the pressure's on them to actually go and do something. So, yeah, I'd love, to, I'd love it to be that because there's nothing better than a summer where it's hot, you're in a beer garden where you mates, you're watching it on one of them big screens or or in your garden or something like that. And there's that social feel to it as well, um, which everyone's been mm. starved of for the last year. So, yeah,
2: great. Right, we're going to focus back on the Premier League in just one moment because with 75% possession and 25 shots on goal... You wouldn't have imagined Brighton were going to slip up against Crystal Palace, but that's exactly what happened. Brighton won Crystal Palace 2. We'll talk about it next on Football Social Daily.
0: Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Listen to the latest Premier League news. Updates and match reports now. Just ask Open Sport Social.
2: Welcome back to Football Social Daily. Premier League action last night, Brighton versus Crystal Palace. As I said before the break, 75% possession for Brighton in that game. 25 shots on goal compared to Crystal Palace's two. They're not the stats you'd associate with a team losing, but that's exactly what Brighton managed to do. How did they do that, Marley? How did that happen? Because it shouldn't have happened.
3: (laughs) Uh, I really don't know. And I would be absolutely fuming if I was a Brighton fan. Um, it's that typical thing, isn't it, of um, f- uh, FIFA or football manager when you absolutely dominate the opposition. Um, all the stats are there in your favour and you manage to lose 2-1 from three shots from the opposition in the entire game. <laughs> or what, even one of them was a bloody heel, which was brilliant, don't get me wrong, but... If there's ever a sign that you looks out, you know, seventy five percent possession, twenty one shots or whatever it was, mm. and then Mateta scores a back heel on pretty much Crystal Palace's first attack of the game. Um, so the in signs... It was were... a
2: great goal. It, it, was, al- it was almost Danny Welbeck. Do you remember when Danny Welbeck went through that phase and he seemed to score like three backhills in a season, one for England and a couple for, I think it was Arsenal at the time. It's very Danny Welbeck-esque, considering he was playing for the opposition. I'll
3: well, tell you what, if, if Jean-Philippe Mateta was listening to this podcast, he'd be fuming at you now for uh, comparing him to <laughs> Danny Welbeck. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it was a great finish. Absolutely brilliant finish. Um, yeah, but it's typical of... of of both teams, I thought last night. You know, if there's a team that's gonna play like complete rubbish, turgid, dour football, it's Crystal Palace that are then gonna then gonna nick nick a goal. Because as much as like we we sort of criticise sort of Burnley for playing rubbish, you know, a, a poor style, and all the rest of it. But Burnley, when Burnley are playing bad, you don't expect them to score. And Crystal Palace, when mm. you're not expecting them to score, can still score. Like, they did it... We Newcastle played them two or three weeks ago, and they were they were rubbish up until uh, up until they scored, and they scored out on nothing. And it was just... It's what they do. Crystal Palace, they don't inspire. They don't excite. They just cling on into games like Japanese knotweed. You just can't get rid of them. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, there they are. Crap. Oh, Christ, they've scored again. And then to nick it in the 95th minute in... Um, I mean, I'm reluctant to call it a derby or a rivalry, even. Um, well, you can call it a rivalry, I suppose, because they do sort of not like each other for some reason. But yeah, um, to nick it in the 95th minute, it's just it's sweet for the fans, I suppose. Um, it's one of them games where you would you would like to have watched fans in the stadium because the scenes would have been uh, would have been sort of you know good to see and all the de- dejection on the uh, the Brighton faces were trying to work it out how they've lost that game. Um, would be something that would be uh, would be kind of funny, but you gotta feel sorry for Brighton. But also, it's typical of them because they had all the game and they couldn't kill it off. They couldn't score. They couldn't mm. couldn't find a way past the defense. That's gonna put the body on the line. Um, a decent goalkeeper. They're gonna do everything that um, that you expect them to do. They don't score enough goals. They don't kill teams off. And they play pretty football between the boxes. But once they get into that box, and once they, once they get into your boxes, Brighton, then. Uh, they struggle.
2: I think when you say it's a freak result like you get in Football Manager and in FIFA, it, in normal circumstances it, was, it would be. And I remember a game, I think it was Liverpool versus West Brom a couple of seasons ago, where exactly the same happened, where Liverpool peppered the West Brom goal with shots. West Brom had one shot on target and won one nil, I think. And that was a freak result. But for Brighton... This has been the case all season, and Niall said on Twitter yesterday, he described Brighton as Champions League between the boxes, but conference when they're in them. And it kind of summed them up really well that they just have a real problem. They play some really pretty football, but have a real problem scoring goals at one end and keeping goals out the other, which is fundamentally what you need to do in football. Do you think at any point they're going to, Grandpa is going to go, right, well, look, we, we need results now. We're going to have to sacrifice this footballing style we're developing? and actually just play ugly and get some points on the board, get those results
1: that we need. Mm. I think you stick to what you're best at, and if that's, prob- that's Brighton's identity and blueprint, so they should probably stick with that. I would say may- maybe look to investing in better strikers. I mean, I-, I always feel uncomfortable when, I don't want to say has-beens because they're still professionals uh, and they're still playing in the Premier League, but when, when players who have you're seeing dropping down the pecking order uh, quite rapidly... People like Danny Welbeck. Um, it don't fill me with confidence. That, yeah, it don't fill me with confidence that you're gonna really go and score um, many goals. So if you've got 25 attempts on target and you're scoring one goal, your problem is your striker's not really your style of football. But I kind of hope this is kind of signals the end a little bit of possession based football, and that it isn't really that great. I've always found it a little bit boring to watch teams that dominate possession. Um, It was alright when Barcelona were doing it 10-15 years ago, but watching Brighton do it in 2021, it's not really that exciting, so I don't really get it. We're not really giving
2: Palace any credit here,
1: Marley, for
2: this result, (laughs) but do they actually... Do they deserve it? That's a thing. Well, that's it, that's the question, because I I think, and and I'm I'm kind of hesitant to give them credit, but I think this is exactly the game plan that Roy Hodgson set up for. Because they haven't, they haven't got uh, Wilfred Zaha. We know he's injured. He hasn't, he hasn't, haven't got the player that can turn the game. And they just absorbed pressure for ninety minutes, and then I am sure he didn't plan to nab it in the ninety-fourth minute with a Christian Benteke volley. You would have got good odds on that if you were a betting person. But the, uh, b- but ultimately, it's kind of the game plan that they went into it with, and probably the game plan
3: they have for most games: absorb pressure, try and nick something. Yeah, and that's um, that is. A way to approach a game, however, it's not the uh, the way. I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure if Crystal Palace fans would want to try and play more expansive um, and try and do something rather than hope for something on the counter, um, the way the way they they have been doing. Um, but yeah, it's it's just one of them where I feel like he hasn't got much else. I don't think um, to do that. He's got experienced players who can frustrate. And can put their body on the line, get in the right positions, make it hard to play against. Gary Cahill's been around. What the Premier he must have been, played 500 and odd Premier League games or something like that. He's been around for years, so he's going to be your, your guy in the defence. He's going to be like, right, well, we're not conceding because we're not going to score. So let's let's try and not concede. And there's no one better back there really than um, than someone like him to to lead that sort of defensive um, approach that that Roy Hodgson fancies that sort of um, that sort of solid, first, sort of defence-first thing. Um, and it, some of it is probably because of Zaha. You know, they're, they are thinking we're, we're lacking flair players here. Um, so let's try and frustrate and keep it safe at the back before we try and win. Mm. go and win anything. But, yeah, it's, um, it's probably... It's more of a problem to think long-term. Like, if they were playing like that every single week and nicking games without being... Um, without... Having even five shots in the entire game, then it then it might become a problem. But I think with with Zahar being out, there is kind of a um, a way that you can see why they played like that last night. And um, obviously the you know Brighton are a decent team with the ball as well, so there always there's always an expectation that you're going to get dominated um, in uh, possession based, and your your expected goals if you're into that stuff is going to be like 0.1 or something, whereas Brighton's mm. is going to be two two and a half. Um, and, yeah, you're going to have to upset the odds a little bit.
1: Got, got to say, though, we've not mentioned it, the Christian Benteke goal, the way he took it last night was brilliant.
3: It was a great volley.
2: Yeah. And you couldn't really blame the Brighton defenders either because it's not like they gave him a huge amount of space. They looked a little bit tired and a little bit leggy. Maybe could have closed him down a little bit quicker, a little bit quicker, but the yeah, the way he took it and almost stroked that volley into the far corner was the Christian Benteke that we remember at Aston Villa
3: all those years ago <laughs> all those years yeah, remember, ago <laughs> remember when he scored that bicycle kick at um, was it at Anfield or Old Trafford where he uh, he buried that bicycle mm. kick and he looked like one of the best strikers in the world and he's barely scored since and then Liverpool bought him and broke him uh, Crystal Palace yes. are 10 points clear
2: now you'd fancy they're safe I think what 12 games to go 10 points clear that feels like a decent enough number Brighton are right back in the mix now though are they in danger of relegation Steph Would not you think they be alright
1: no I think they've got more than the other teams who are scrapping it out um... I, th- I think at this point it is just between Fulham and Newcastle. OK. Brighton have never won a game on a
2: Monday night in the Premier League, by the way, which is a really interesting stat. They just don't like Mondays. Don't like winning in the Premier League on a Monday. Uh, let's turn our attention... They like winning at home, <laughs> no. They've only got two at home all season. All, all winning, you could say, full stop. They haven't had the, <laughs> the, the best season. Uh, Atletico Madrid versus Chelsea is happening tonight in the Champions League. Premier League interest there for the Blues. Thomas Tuchel unbeaten so far as Chelsea manager. But his team have probably been favourites in every game they've played so far under his reign. He's had a pretty easy run in this unbeaten run he's had. But not tonight. I think it's safe to say Atletico are probably the favourites here, Marley. Do you think he can keep the run
3: going? Do you think Chelsea have got a chance in this one? Um, they've certainly got a chance. Um, I think I think it's a really interesting game because um, you've got... You know, Atletico. I'm just, I'm just looking at the odds now. Basically, the odds they can't be split. <laughs> Basically, it's, uh, it's Atletico is slight favourites. But yeah, mm. I think um, the way both teams play is is interesting because Chelsea like to to have the ball as we've if we've seen under Tuchel so far. You know, they're, they're always getting seventy odd percent possession. Um, Atletico won't be that bothered um, that Chelsea have the ball because they they've. they've played without the ball a long, uh, for a long time, they're, they're famous for that defence and even though I think they've been playing a, a different system this season, they haven't played the, in the last few years, they've played like a four-four-two. Um, 4 but this season I think they've switched to three at the back for a lot of games mm. um, but still three at the back when you haven't got possession of the football is a five at the back really because you've got the wing backs coming back and frustrating. Um, frustrating the opposition but not, not, It's not just the formation though They're playing a much more open Attractive
2: Style of football this season They've still got the I mean if you've got Diego Simeone as a manager, you're still going to have that gritty edge, that hard-working edge, that ability to put a tackle in. But they seem to be playing a much more free-flowing style this season than
3: we've seen previously
2: as well for Atletico.
3: Yeah, and that's, that's massively dangerous because, um, you know, they've got some insane players. They've got Suarez, who's top scorer in, in Spain, um, the top of the league mm. in Spain and a comfortable Comfortable with that as well because I think they're uh, they three points clear with a game in hand of Real Madrid. So, you know everything's going well for them. They're not used to losing games. They've only got two defeats in the league all season. Um, and they'll they'll fancy this tonight. They'll they won't have they won't be thinking let's let's win the league and not really concentrate on the Champions League. They'll be trying to win this. They'll be trying to uh, put one over on Tuchel as well because. Um, yeah, it's it's one of them where they've got the pedigree in the Champions League. They've been to the final. Um, they've they've, you know, they've won the final recently. Uh, I think it was three or four years ago, wasn't it? So, they um they will fancy their chances tonight, and they won't be somebody. I think Chelsea in the Premier League have had a lot of teams that are, that will allow them the ball, and I think as much as they'll sit in Atletico, they'll be a hell of a threat on the counter attack. Um, and they mm. will try and take the chances that when they come. So it could be a really interesting game.
2: No Thiago Silva for Chelsea tonight, but the bigger selection question for me is who Tuchel plays up front because that front three seems to be his big question at the moment. He seems to have got the defence sorted. They don't concede too many goals, Chelsea, since he's come in. But in terms of the attacking options, he's got some choices to make, Steph. Who would be your front three that you pick from to lead the line tonight?
1: I'd probably go for Giroud. Um... I think mean, you just more or less guaranteed a goal with Juru. Um and he holds the ball up well, which is gonna be good, um, playing against Atletico Madrid. Uh and to go with that, I'd probably I don't know. I'd say an Embarrassment
2: because of riches, isn't it? <laughs> to a certain extent. There's a lot of options for Chelsea in those areas.
1: Yeah, I'd I'd say Werner as well. Um because he's I find him exciting. I like what he does um attacking from the wing areas. Um and he's got experience playing in the Champions League. Um, I, w- I wouldn't be starting with a Tammy Abraham or somebody like that. So, But uh, those two um, would be the, my two picks, to be fair.
2: It's a really interesting stat on Oliver Giroud, that out of all the players in the Champions League who have scored more than one goal, so he has the best average per minute in terms of goals. He's scored five goals in 142 minutes of Champions League football, which is one every 28 minutes. Callum Hudson-Odoi would be an interesting choice, Marley, because he'll have a point to prove. Because at the weekend, he was subbed on and then subbed off again because Tuchel didn't like his body language, which was a weird thing to have for him to say after the game because certainly in the attacking phases of play, Hudson-Odoi had some really nice moments in Chelsea's game at the weekend. But it's embarrassing for the player to get hauled off when you're a substitute anyway. So he's going to have a point to prove in this game, potentially.
3: Yeah, but... Um... Having said that, I don't I don't I don't expect him to start at all. Um I think he'll go with Reese James because I think I was saying a couple of weeks ago in the podcast, I think when when the better opposition is playing Chelsea, I think um he'll go with the more experienced, actual right wing back in Reese James. Um it'd be interesting on the left as well, because we all know Marcos Alonso can't defend. Um but also he's been in the team for pretty much every game bar one from, from Tuchel so far. So it'd be interesting to see if he gets picked ahead of Chilwell again. Um because uh, as much as I think Chil was a better player, I think he sat on the bench for the last three weeks now. So to chuck him in against Atletico Madrid would be um, a bit strange. But yeah, Hudson Odoi was. I, d- I didn't watch the game at the weekend, the Chelsea game, but I seen that he got pulled off, and I was um I was moving out at the time, so I thought, oh, he must be he must be injured. I'll um I'll take him out my fantasy draft team. I'll uh, I'll get I'll get rid of him next week. Um and he, yeah, it turned out that he was he was just unhappy with him, and that's. That's a real test of character because straight away he was in the team, wasn't he? In Tuchel's first game, hudson Doy was the best player on the pitch. Um, uh, I think it was against Burnley, sorry, not the Wolves game, that was his first game. But the game against Burnley, yeah, he was uh, He was the main man. He was the guy who was like, oh, well, this guy's going to actually get the best from hudson Um He seems to have crammed him in at right wing back and see how he does there. Um, but... Yeah, it's, um, it's a tough test if he does get picked tonight. It's a tough test of his character to come back from that and prove, prove somebody wrong. I think Tuchel knew what he was doing, um. so it's uh, it's an early test in his career because I think his head was turned recently, I think, by buying, wanting him and things like that a, a few months ago and a couple of years ago as well. All like been dragging on for ages, I've always wanted him, but that is maybe a test of his character being... Being put to the test, you know, he was he was like sort of tempted by that, and maybe two cool things. I wonder where he, I wonder how easily it is to to break him mentally. Like not that he wants to break him, he just wants to test him and get the best out of him. Different players react to different things. Some player, some players when they get took off after twenty minutes, will sulk and won't kick a football for weeks because they'll be they'll be fuming. Whereas others will go at the training pitch and be the best player on the pitch the entire. Um, next week or two, and uh, have a real point to prove. So, I guess Tuchel's probably just testing him and see seeing what the reaction's like. Because if the reaction's positive, you've got an, uh, you've got an absolute world beta
2: there. The game is playing, being played in Bucharest tonight rather than Spain because of COVID issues. So there is no real home advantage for Atletico. Luis Suarez is the man to watch as well. He has never failed to score or deliver an assist in the Champions League campaign in his entire career. It's his eighth season playing in the tournament so far this season. No goals, no assists in the Champions League so you'd fancy that tonight is potentially the time for him to break that duck we're going to talk about Leeds United next Marcelo Bielsa not signing a new contract in Yorkshire and some questions about his future being raised we'll get on that next on Football Social Daily
0: Football Social Daily find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk Here the latest Premier League news for your team. Just ask Open Sports Social.
2: Welcome back to Football Social Daily. Let's talk Marcelo Bielsa. Let's talk Leeds because the Leeds United manager has indicated he may sign a new contract, but he doesn't want to do it now. He wants to wait until the summer before he puts ink on paper. It's a cause some debate this one, Steph, because. Ultimately, this is the way Marcelo Bielsa does business. He doesn't like long-term contracts. He likes to kind of do it. One contract expires, he signs another one, decides whether he wants to stay. But that seems to have unsettled the nerves a little bit in Leeds because he is really important to that football club and the way it operates at the moment. So, I mean, do you think this is just Marcelo Bielsa being Marcelo Bielsa? Are Leeds United right to potentially put pressure on him, try and get him to commit to a long-term deal when that isn't what he normally does?
1: Yeah, it's Bielsa being Bielsa. Um he's he said he said that he he always signs something at the end of a season when he knows what's what. Um so why would you expect him to do otherwise? Um so I don't I don't really think it's a a reason for Leeds fans to get um upset or worried that uh King Bielsa the, the savior of football in Yorkshire is going to leave. I think he'll <laughs> I think he'll stay. Um he's he's maybe he maybe wants some reassurances on some things from from the chairman uh, what he can do in the summer um but he's always signed a one year contract and he'll probably sign another one in the summer i mean why would anybody want to leave yorkshire jim <laughs> do you think that's frustrating for the Leeds board cuz when you're the
2: running a football club you kind of want that long term assurance that the club has a direction that you can invest in a playing squad that is going to be relevant for the current manager and the future manager you want to keep your investors happy you want to show that you're growing as a team so to have a manager that's saying look I'm only going to commit to the next nine months must be
3: a thorn in their side to a certain extent Marley. Uh, Yeah but I think you always knew that that was going to happen with Biel so I think it happened uh, last season when the, when they got promoted, um he didn't sign a contract until the summer, like and he said, like obviously everything was there, everything was going well, he'd got leads to the Premier League and he still hadn't signed a contract because he's very uh, single minded and in, in if he thinks he can't take a, a club further, he won't he won't stay. Um I think he said in his press conference yesterday that or his interview, whatever it was, that um
2: he he said I'm not gonna manage any other options until my job here at Leeds
3: is done. Is that what you're referring to? No, he said um he said that the, the project at Leeds is bigger than him. Okay. As in, you know, I can't be the I can't be here forever. The Leeds have ambitions. Um and he almost says to all him, all his employees, he's done this for his whole career basically, saying that if you you know, your whole plan as a football club forever can't revolve around one manager, um and he doesn't want to stay there forever and become you know what's that saying it's like you you leave as a hero or or you stay to become a villain because yeah football you can't you can't you can't be there for everything everything you know not every club can have a Sir Alex Ferguson that that, uh, that manages forever until he feels like he's until he gets too old to basically so it's um it's just the way Bielsa operates he's he will leave when he thinks he's done um, and he he knows as well that there's no loyalty in football. He knows that um, at some point Leeds will say, "Well, this squad's good enough to do better, um, and could we go in a different direction to be elsewhere?" And as o- as long as you don't annoy him and break promises, he'll stay and he'll take you to as far as as he can or he thinks he can. Um, we've seen it in the past. He left Lazio after two days because they 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 went, they went back on some contract negotiations. Mm. Um, about, I think it was about transfers or something like that and he was like not working with you, you're a bunch of liars Um, and as long as you keep as long as everyone understands him at the club there won't be any issues I don't think you kind of refer to him
2: as the, the king of Leeds football, the saviour of Leeds football, Steph. And it, You said it a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but there's, there's a certain truth in that. He's held in such high regard at the football club. I do wonder what happens when and if he does leave, and there is no suggestion that he won't sign that extension. Do you think we'll see a, current, a situation similar to we saw, as Marley says, with Alex Ferguson, where the next manager coming in is going to have such a tough job to follow what has come before, that it's almost going to be a poisoned chalice. It, you almost need like that, that manager to come in as a buffer zone that you know you're going to sack in nine months so you can then start again and reset.
1: I get the impression that the folk in Yorkshire uh, like the unorthodox nature of the guy. They like that he goes to the cafe every morning for his uh, 46 and his black coffee. Uh, they like that he, <laughs> he doesn't sits in a bucket on the sidelines,
2: <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Yeah,
1: they like that he doesn't speak English. They they like that kind of thing about him. Uh it's endearing, isn't it? It's different. Because I think I think we're kind of all a bit bored of the uh the the super European manager who uh you know Do you know we
3: uh do you know he can speak English?
1: Well really? it wouldn't surprise yeah. me, yeah. Um, Apparently
3: he can speak English, he's just very wary of not being um of saying the wrong thing and so you know with like context in english you know sort of you can say things and it can completely alter the context of what you're doing yeah that's why he's um he, he goes through the interpreter to make sure he gets it right um but he understands english that's why he, he doesn't need if you notice him in uh, press comp in post match interviews he doesn't need the question from the reporter relaying to him he can understand it that's why he goes and then he just gives his answer to the uh, the guy next to him
1: well, that's bizarre. That just proves the point how unorthodox a guy he is. Um, <laughs> but, he does two things
3: he's are like.
1: Yeah, bizarre. But, um, so that, that endears people to him uh, and and it, it's it's a bit cooler. It reminds it reminds me of like a Sunday League football manager, especially the way he dresses and the way he acts. Uh, a bit more than the, the uber arrogant, confident uh, European manager with the Gucci suit on, you know what I mean? So, I think the people in Yorkshire like that. He just needs to get a flap cap. Um, but, in terms of the next manager coming in and uh, being impossible to replace and all that, he's he's not he's not built a dynasty at Leeds, has he? It's not it's not a Sir Alex Ferguson type case. So it's, it's more an aura, though, isn't it? He's kind of built. He's kind of he, like I say, his his status
2: at the club almost is bigger than what he has achieved.
1: Yeah, the the moment you've got murals going up around Leeds of you know big face pointing out, you know, it's a bit. It's a bit much for me. That, that's why I take the piss out of it a little bit. But um, <laughs> as, as long as he's set a good foundation, um, which he seems to be doing, uh, he probably needs a bit of squad depth. I mean, uh, you look at Phillips not played for the last five games and they've not won any. Um, hmm. That that shows that they need a bit of squad depth still. But the foundations of it, he's got a good mix of uh, local players, um, English players and and players that he's signed in. So, I mean... As long as that foundation is there then, to be honest with you, I, I don't know if it would make that much of a difference if he did leave Leeds in the summer. Um, so I, I, it's not going to be impossible to replace is what I'm trying to say in a nutshell.
2: I, think, I reckon the sleeper replacement is actually his interpreter. Because you know Jose Mourinho started life as Bobby Robson's interpreter at Barcelona. That's kind of where he learnt the craft. So I reckon the interpreter is going to be a football manager. Like one of the world's best in kind of five, six years, something like that. Uh, Right, that is it for Football Social Daily today. Steph, thank you very much. Yeah, cheers, Jim. Pleasure as always, Marley. Cheers, guys. If you want more sports news, you want the latest on your football team, then go to sport social.co.uk and you'll find it there. And we'll see you next time on Football Social Daily.
0: Football Social Daily from Sport Social. Find us on Facebook. Search Sport Social. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash.